Last week, Pastor Grant did an excellent job laying out the framework for us in the book of Titus. We saw that there were three persons primarily mentioned in the introductory verses, Paul, the Lord, and Titus. As Paul started out this letter, he made one important statement that is going to be a thread throughout the entire book. It's going to be a theme, if you will. In verse 1, Paul stated that for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The Lord had given Paul apostleship and sent him throughout the world to do the work of the ministry for the sake of all that God would call to himself. Or another way to put it, God made Paul an apostle for the sake of his brothers and sisters both back then at the time and all of the future brothers and sisters that would be called as well. We saw how Cretans were at Pentecost and inevitably had gone back to Crete and had no doubt started to spread the good news of the gospel throughout their island. They had begun to bring heaven to earth through their obedience of faithfully sharing the good news of Jesus. Over time, however, an issue arose. You see, if we date Pentecost in the early 30s AD, right after the Lord would have ascended to heaven, and if we date the book of Titus being written around early to mid-60s A.D., there could have potentially been three decades of time that, have, that would have elapsed that the Cretans would have gotten the gospel and taken it back to Crete and that the gospel was going forth. And the issue was this. Yes, the gospel had gone back to Crete and had begun to spread. Yes, the Lord was graciously and sovereignly drawing people to himself and bringing his sons and daughters into the kingdom. However, as is usually the case, wherever the truth goes, error is sure to follow. And on an occasion when Paul and Titus visited the island of Crete for a ministry trip, they found the churches there under attack and ill-equipped. They were under attack from those within the circumcision party, those persons that were saying that even Gentiles, once they became Christians and followers of Jesus, it was necessary for them to be circumcised and to follow the Old Testament laws. Now, as the island of Crete was made up of primarily Gentiles, you could see the potential confusion and misunderstanding that this could bring Apparently, this belief had gained enough traction and was beginning to do enough damage that Paul viewed it as a lethal threat that had to be dealt with swiftly and thoroughly. The bad part was that when he looked around at the churches on Crete, they were in no way structured to handle that kind of doctrinal and shepherding attack. They were weak, vulnerable, and in need of leadership. So what did Paul and Titus do? What did they do, Pastor Grant? They got to work. They began going around and refuting the error that was being taught. They no doubt taught sound doctrine and heralded the gospel of Jesus Christ. They taught that eternal life is a free gift of God with no requirements of the Gentiles to be circumcised and to put themselves under the old covenant. They preached that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
However, while they were doing this, Paul got called away to go somewhere else. We're not really sure what that was that drew him away, but needless to say, it was urgent enough to take him from the task at hand of refuting error and properly establishing the churches on Crete in a healthy fashion. He will not completely withdraw his presence, though, from the island, so to speak. He will leave his representative. He will leave his friend and companion that he trusts. He will leave Titus to them to continue laboring for the sake of the elect. And thankfully for them and for us, Titus is up for the challenge. He is committed to the Lord and devoted to the mission that lies before him. And that brings us to our first point in our outline this morning, is that Titus was devoted to the mission. Verse 5, Titus's devotion to the mission. In verse 5 we read, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The first thing we see in our text is that Paul left Titus. Now, usually the concept of being left behind is not a good one. If I said that we went somewhere and we left Bill, you would think that it was either uh, an error on our part or Bill's in the separation occurring. But that is not the idea here at all. The idea here is that Titus intentionally stayed behind while Paul went on. In this instance, both Paul and Titus were fully aware of what they were doing and intentionally separated for the sake of the gospel. Paul left to go to another work, and Titus, for the time being anyway, stayed on Crete for the good of those churches to finish the work that he and Paul were doing. One commentary on this says it well when it says, for unknown reasons, Paul left Crete before the churches were fully organized. However, Paul temporarily left Titus behind in order to complete the mission. He left him for a particular purpose and a specific reason. And why is that? This is an important point this morning. Because they both saw the mission as more important than themselves. They both saw the mission of the gospel and of healthy churches as more important than themselves. This cannot be emphasized enough, brothers and sisters. They saw the gospel and the spread of God's truth to his churches as more important than their comfort, more important than their own friendship, more important than their own safety, and even lives. They lived in such a way that the glory of God and the health of churches and the spread of the gospel was literally what they lived for. They set their will aside for what their good God desired them to do. What about you, friend? Is that your heart here this morning? Are you willing to go wherever God wants you, even if that means discomfort, disconnection from family or friends, or perhaps also even the life that God himself has graciously given you? Do you see the mission of the gospel as the most important force that drives us even here at Park? I pray you do because it's not the will of Pastor Dave or a vision that he might have or Pastor Grant or even any of the other elders 
or deacons. The mission of the gospel is what takes precedent over anything else that motivates us here. It unifies unifies us and causes us to lay down our lives for one another, to go and give to missions, to go and be a part of a church plant and go anywhere on this globe in his time to do his work if that's his desire for us. The mission is what we should be devoted to no matter the cost. It was for Titus. And that's why he chose to stay in Crete while Paul went on. He was so devoted to the mission that he stayed to finish the job that they had started. There are, I think, two parts to what Titus was left to do. Some think one, but I tend to think it's two. Those two things were to, one, put what remained into order, first of all, and secondly, to appoint elders in every town. Now, it's not really going to change a whole lot interpretation-wise if you take it either as one or two things that are being mentioned, but I think there's a good reason to think that it's two distinct actions that are being referred to, that he's been left to fix the things that are remaining and to appoint the elders. With the state of the churches being as weak as they were, there would have been plenty of potentially small shepherding tasks that needed to be done in order to set things right. Or as some other translations put it, to set in order the things that are lacking. This could include correcting particular points of doctrine, especially when it came to the barrage of false teaching that these churches were encountering. It could also be shepherding hurting believers who had bought into false doctrine and perhaps were going through difficult times. Perhaps it was even telling them that some of the things they were doing in corporate worship needed to be amended. Needless to say, there was much work to be done. There was, however, one primary piece to the healthy church puzzle that was missing that Paul wanted Titus to make particularly important and to emphasize in his stay there. And that was the desperate need that these churches on Crete had for godly leaders or elders. Now, like I said, you can take the language in verse 5 to be referring to two distinct, act, uh, two distinct activities that Paul is referring to, or you'd be perfectly fine to see it as one, in which case the matter that is remaining to be put in order is chiefly and primarily the appointing of elders in every town. Both of, us get, both of them get us to the same point this morning, so I will leave it up to you to decide. For our purposes in these verses, though, Paul is going to stop and put emphasis on the appointing of these elders as what Titus needs to make his priority. He is going to then subsequently expound on that concept. It's once been said that everything rises and falls on leadership. Another way to say it in a spiritual context would be to say that a church is only as healthy as the leadership that watches over her, protects her, and shepherds her. In the Bible, it is God's design that elders be that group. They are to protect, feed, love, guide, 
teach and lead the body to grow closer to their Savior. They are to oversee the flock and be willing to lay their lives down for the sheep as the good shepherd has done for us. For all intents and purposes, they are to put on display the character of Christ to his people and speak on behalf of the master who has bought them. They are to act as under-shepherds of the bride of Christ until the chief shepherd appears. Paul understood that this was God's plan. He knew the absolute necessity of good leadership in the church. This was evidenced by the fact that usually, like we looked at last week, the first thing that Paul would do whenever he went to a place and there was a group of believers would be to set up elders. Just as a way of reminder, in Acts 14, 21 through 23, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is God's pattern. This is God's design for leadership in his church. And as with all matters in life, because God is a God of order and not disorder, it is a beautiful thing. He has a very specific plan to set in place, both for the structure of elders within the church and a detailed list of character traits for those who would potentially serve as elders within the body. The first component we can see in our text that outlines part of that specific plan is that there is supposed to be a plurality of elders within the body. In other words, inasmuch as the Lord blesses a church, the goal should always be to have more than one pastor, one shepherd, one elder. The reason we know this is by simply looking at the case that the word elder is in in both our text here and in Acts. And every time is a good time for grammar, as you would agree with me. When you look at the word elder, is it in the singular or is it in the plural? It's in the plural. So in every town for Titus and in every church that we see in Acts, multiple elders in one location is what is being spoken of. But why is it so vital for there to be many? Well, once again, first of all, because it's his design it is right and good because God desires it to be ordered and structured that way. But just practically, there are many benefits that we can see for there being more than one elder or pastor in one church. The following is a list of some 10 of them from a book called 40 Questions About Pastoral Ministry by Phil Newton. According to Phil, a plurality of elders does the following, shares the shepherding load, utilizes multiple gifts to serve the body, compensates for a single pastor's weaknesses by multiple strengths, builds accountability, curtails authoritarianism, is essential when dealing with disciplinary issues, models maturity and unity for the church, provides consistency in leadership decisions, multiplies ability to train and mentor future church leaders, and finally cultivates a stable leadership model for the church. 
almost like it was planned. The Lord has ordered and structured all things in this life to be the way that he wants it, and the church is no different. Needless to say, there are many reasons why this is the case, and like I said, this is the Lord's design. It helps and protects pastors and leaders in so many ways. This is why even going back to Moses in our scripture reading this morning that Jack read, it's always been God's plan for a group of specifically godly men to bear the burdens of leading and shepherding his people. As Paul reminds Titus of the directions he had given him to appoint elders in every town, he goes through probably primarily for the benefit of those who would initially hear and read this for the first time what a simple sketch looks like of the heart of a potential elder who would fill that role in that office. The list he gives over the next few verses are character qualities reflecting a redeemed heart and a unique devotion outwardly manifested in three different areas. The first devotion brings us to our second point in our outline. The kind of men that could be potential elders are men devoted to their families. Men devoted to their families. In verse 6 we read, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. As Titus begins to look around for brothers with certain qualities who might fill this role of elder, Paul instructs him to look in one specific location that will reveal at the beginning whether or not a man is suited for such a position, and that location is his home. It's important to note that Paul will begin both verses 6 and 7 with the same idea. The same, the same main thrust about this man must qualify him in regards to being an elder or a shepherd. He must be above reproach. Or, as some other translations word it, he must be blameless. In verse 6, he must be so in regards to his family, and in verse 7, he must be so when it comes to his personal holiness. Now, first of all, we have to define what above reproach means. Is Paul in any way, shape, or form implying that elders have to be perfect? Well, I hope not. <laughs> he is not. Of course not. Of course not. He is in no way appealing to a standard that is not possible this side of eternity. So if he's not implying that elders have to be perfect, what does he mean? Well, simply this. There can be no gaping holes in his character. There can be no cause for looking at his life and seeing a massive absence of the Spirit in regard to how he operates and functions. One commentary note helps us with this idea when it says, Paul is not speaking of sinless perfection, but is declaring that leaders in Christ's church must have no sinful defect in their lives that could justly call their virtue, their righteousness, or their godliness into question and indict them. There must be nothing in their lives to disqualify them as models of moral and spiritual character for believers under their care to emulate. They not only must teach and preach rightly, but also must live rightly. Paul charged Timothy that in speech, in conduct, love, faith, and purity, he was to show himself as an example of those 
who believe. And that's very important. That's critical to understand in our passage this morning, beloved. Paul is taking that principle and then is going to elaborate on it once again regarding what it looks like with his family life, his home life, and then his personal walk with the Lord. With regard to a family life, there's two categories that can be examined, his wife and his children. The basic question is this, how does he relate to them? Or another way to phrase it would be, is there evidence in his life and his families that he is devoted to them and that he is shepherding them well? The actual phrase, husband of one wife, in the Greek is probably better rendered more specifically a one-woman man. Now, we're not going to dive into the debate this morning of exactly what that means concerning particular boundaries of what would still constitute someone being able to still fulfill the office and role of elder. For instance, whether or not someone who is divorced in all instances is always disqualified or not. But what I think the thrust and the main idea of Paul with this idea or with this concept of above reproach is, is that when you look at a man, he is singularly devoted to his wife in both his words and his behavior. He is one who is faithful to the bride whom God has graciously given him. He loves her. He cherishes her. His eyes are for her only. He flirts only with her and extends compliments toward her that should only be hers to begin with. He is sexually and morally pure in his relationship with her. And I don't think it's by accident, beloved, that this is the first one that Paul mentions. There are too many tragic stories of men in ministry where this has not been the case. Their eyes and hearts have wandered, and it has caused untold damage in both their families and their churches where they were serving. The other aspect of his home that should be viewed is his children. Now it says his children should be believers. Some other translations say that he should have faithful children. Is Paul saying that this man, or any for that, can guarantee the salvation of his kids in determining whether or not they are Christians? Well, of course not. As Pastor Grant said last week, and the same with myself, I am shepherding my girls in such a way that I want to do everything I can to not be an obstacle or a reason for them to walk away from the faith. I want to bring them up to the truth of Scripture and introduce them to the God who loves them, who has made them girls and, is, and has got a wonderful plan for their life in regards to serving him. But that's all I can do. I can bring them up. I can lead them up to him. I can have devotions and worship time. But in the end, because we know God is sovereign and regeneration is a work of him, I pray. And I pray with everything in me that God would awaken their hearts. So I don't think what Paul is saying is that a man can determine and dictate whether or not someone is a believer. But I think that what he is saying, and especially in connection with the end of the verse, is that this potential, el uh, that this potential elder shepherds his children in such a way to where he has control of his own household. He disciplines them. He loves them. He listens to them. They listen to him and respect him. Are they perfect? <laughs> of course not but they are kept in line, and by that ordering and by that structuring and the way that they are relating to him, the gospel is glorified. 
The corresponding list, I think, in 1 Timothy 3 really helps shed some light on this in verses 4 and 5, when Paul says that he, being a potential elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The principle is this, that he knows how to lovingly shepherd and manage his household well with both his wife and his children. He cares for them and is doing everything he can to lead them to Jesus and teach them his ways. Just one caveat before we move on, though. Though Paul speaks about what it looks like for a man to be in right relationship with both his wife and his children, I don't think he's making it a requirement that someone be both married and have children in order to fulfill the office and role of elder. He's simply saying that if you are married, this is what it should look like. If you have children, this is what it should look like. I think Paul himself was a good example of someone who was single and yet still would have fulfilled the heart requirements of a shepherd in God's church. The second devotion we find in verses 7 to 8, and that brings us to point number three, that these men are men who are devoted to holiness. Men who are devoted to holiness. Verse 7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This list really should go without saying, right? And why is that? Because it's the list that all of us should have. Every Christian who is walking by the Spirit and is led according to Christ should have this kind of heart. This is just someone who is walking by the Spirit, and it's what they should be known for. That when your name comes up in conversation, is this what people would associate with you? Do they, do they see you as humble and hospitable and just loving what is good? This is not, once again, just for elders. This is for all of us, brothers and sisters. But there's a reason why it's so paramount and important for an elder to have this type of walk with the Lord and to be modeling this behavior externally. And that's because he is going to be setting a pattern for the body to follow. He will need to live in such a way that he can echo Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, we're not going to unpack each one of these words, but all of them together paint the picture, once again, of someone who is chiefly qualified for this office because of his heart. There are, these are heart qualities and heart characteristics that are in view. And I'll, let me just tell you right now, I am so thankful that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul did not pen to Titus that when you're, when you're looking for godly men to fill this role, look for the most intellectual, the brightest, the ones with the highest IQ, the ones with the most popularity, who will obviously, inevitably, will inevitably be able to spread the gospel the best. No. You know what he said when he's giving this heart list? He's basically saying, look for the men who look like they've been with Christ. Look, look for the men who are reflecting Christ in their behavior and in the way that they live. 
It's someone who is devoted to walking in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. He leans on and is led by the Spirit in everything that he does. He wants his heart to please God in everything. It echoes Psalm 139 when David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you look at the two verses in verse 7 and 8, I hope something jumps out to you. Verse 7 is a list of qualities that should not characterize him and that he should be known for. And verse 8 simply is. Just two things to draw out. We're going to look at one hard attitude in in both 7 and 8. In verse 7, it says that he must not be arrogant, or as some other translations put it, self-willed. He should not demand his own way. He should be known for his humility. He should model his Lord Jesus who set an unparalleled pattern for us in this area. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the King of glory, left heaven, friends, and came and lived a life of humility and died for us. Maybe you're here this morning and a friend invited you, but you have yet to give your life to Christ. Could I just plead with you? Be reconciled to God through him. As it stands now, your sins separate you from a God who is holy and righteous and demands perfection to be in his presence. The only source of righteousness we have that can meet that demand is through his son who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was buried, but three days later, rose so that you could have eternal life. Now, if you would repent of your sins and trust him as Lord, the Bible says that you will be saved. Do not delay. We're not promised tomorrow. Look to Christ and live. Look to the one who modeled humility and gave us that pattern to follow. Elders should look like Jesus and reflect his heart of humility. If a man is to represent Jesus, he must do so chiefly in this way. Secondly, in verse 8, it says that this man must be holy. He must reflect God in his heart and mind with regards to moral character and uprightness. It must be evident that he is different from the world and that he communes with the living God. As I thought about this, I realized how important this quality really is. It is so because we as elders here at Park literally approach God on your behalf. We pray prayers of intercession for you. We are accountable to God for how we shepherd you. Now, please don't think for a second that I'm saying you have to go through us to get to God. Of course not. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
But what I am saying is that in the same way that Moses interceded and pled with God on the people's behalf, so we do with God for the members of Park Baptist Church. And if we approach him and go into his presence, we ourselves must be holy, for he is holy. The man who would shepherd God's flock must himself be holy in order to properly fill the role of elder in his church. This brings us to our fourth and final point this morning, and that is that when Titus is looking for these men to fill this office, they are to be men devoted to the truth. Men devoted to the truth. Verse 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Like we said, up to this point, once again, all of the character qualities mentioned could really be applied to all Christians. All believers should be this type of Christian and should have that type of moral virtue where when someone in the world looks at you, you're above reproach, you're holy, you're not characterized by certain things. But when we get to verse 9, this is one verse that distinguishes an elder. The twofold ministry of the word that we'll get to in a moment stems out of the beginning of the verse where Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Even when you're looking at quali the qualifications of an elder or deacon, the only difference primarily, once again, is not the heart because the same spirit lives in us both, but it's the ability to teach and to communicate the word of God. The word for hold fast there in verse 9 simply means to, str uh, to strongly cling or adhere to something or to someone. One commentary explains the meaning well when it says, Speaking of spiritual allegiance, Jesus said no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one, that holding, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God's preachers and teachers are to cling to the faithful word with fervent devotion and unflagging diligence. Those who would be elders in God's church must be committed unwaveringly to the truth. They must be committed to the scriptures and that the Bible is indeed God's breathed out revelation to us. They must be devoted to the gospel and that it is the only solution for reconciling a sinful world to a holy God. Only when he himself is convinced of that reality Will he be able to fulfill the twofold ministry of the, of the word that is required by an elder that it speaks of here in verse 9? There's a positive aspect and there's a negative aspect, so to speak. The positive aspect is that they would give instruction in sound doctrine, and the negative is that they would rebuke those who contradict it. Paul is simply reminding Titus that in order for someone to be fit, to do the work of the ministry in the capacity of eldership, he must hold and grip and cling tightly to the scriptures in order to both proclaim them properly and defend them rightly. And when doing this, trust that God will do his perfect work through his word to accomplish exactly 
what he desires to accomplish through it. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 say, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The man who would be an elder and a representative of Christ must be holy in his actions so that when God, by his grace, chooses a weak vessel to speak through him, the word can go forth unfettered and God can accomplish in his church and abroad the work that he wants to accomplish. Now, after examining such high requirements this morning in our text for those who would shepherd God's church, it could lead us to think that whoever does serve in this role is somehow a super Christian or at an elite level within the church. But could I just gently and yet firmly say that nothing could be farther from the truth, brothers and sisters. I believe I can speak for all the elders and Pastor Grant and Pastor Dave when I say that we count it an absolute joy and privilege to serve you in this capacity. We love you. We want to protect you from false doctrine. We want to instruct you in sound and healthy ways of the king. Above all, we want to serve you in any way we can for the good of your soul. So that as Paul said in Colossians 1.28, what our desire is for you, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We, the elders here, are simply under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. We are weak. We are sinners. We will fail you, but we love you. Please pray for us so that we can truly lead in a way where we can look at you and say confidently, imitate us as we imitate Christ. Dear Father, it is such an honor and a joy and a weight to be able to shepherd your people. I pray that as we looked at just briefly this morning what the qualifications are for the men that you call to that office, that we would, once again, as I was just saying, remember that elders fail, but Lord, elders love. I pray that we would here at Park glory in the design that you have set up, that we would rejoice in it because it is your good and right design. We love you. We are so thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.